Small changes when made over time can dramatically change long-term results. And this is one of the themes discussed with Dr. Casey Seidemann on this episode of Operate with Zen. Casey is a pediatric urologist at Oregon Health and Sciences University, and she's known for her robotic skills and academic accomplishments. A few years ago, Casey had never run a complete mile. Now, in addition to her robotic skills, Casey is known as an outspoken advocate for physical wellness and well-being for urologists, trainees, and surgeons alike. Hear how this transformation took place on this episode of Operate with Zen. My name is Phil Perazio, and I'm a urologic oncologist, a surgeon. Like many of you, I absolutely love what I do, and I would not choose another profession. But I've struggled with professional identity, practice efficiency, and wellness over the years. Operate with Zen is a podcast designed to explore a mindful approach to surgery and to being a surgeon. By discussing these struggles and mindful solutions, I hope together we can create a community of strong and healthy surgeons. Enjoy. Welcome to Operate with Zen. Today, I have the great pleasure of being with Casey Seidemann. Casey, introduce yourself to the audience. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Phil. So I'm Casey Seidemann. I'm a pediatric urologist at Dornbecker, which is part of Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. I am an assistant professor, and I'm currently the director of pediatric robotics, as well as the director of medical student education and mentorship. Wonderful. Well, we've got a lot of things we want to talk about today. One of my first introductions to you, Casey, was on social media and particularly around working out physical well-being, Peloton. I uh, saw a lot of the great things you, you talked about there. So if you can, give us a little introduction into kind of how you keep physically well as a busy surgeon, uh, and we'll go from there. Yeah, that's a great question. And your story from when I started listening to your podcast really resonated with my story and there might be some connections there. So there was the great pause two years ago when the pandemic first hit and I very serendipitously purchased a Peloton bike about one month before this happened. I did not have any prior insight that the world would stop turning temporarily but it really worked out for me. So all of a sudden I had a piece of equipment that is a wonderful opportunity for exercise and I had time. And so I went from being someone who exercised incredibly infrequently to being someone who all of a sudden had the gift of time and I utilized that gift to form a habit. And so I think the most powerful thing you can do if you want to start exercising is to try to create an actual habit by actually budgeting time for yourself every single day, even if it's five to 10 minutes. Yeah, I think that's huge. And, you know, we talk a lot about this on this podcast, but change is hard. Change is really hard and big change is even harder and small incremental changes are often the way to do it. And yeah, you can work up to hour long workouts or two hour long or however, however you want to end up. But start with five minutes, start with 10 minutes, make little incremental changes. And if you like the way you're going, then just keep making micro changes and, and add things up. Um, and I think that's a great for everybody to hear that this is actually how it works and, and how it's sustainable. Yeah. And around that same time, I was reading this book called Atomic Habits, sorry, Atomic Habits, which I would recommend to everybody. I think it's a really wonderful book that breaks down the science behind how to have good habits and how to break bad habits. He's showing it live on camera if anyone's watching the video. Um, so I, I would highly recommend this book, but it really breaks down a few key points that I think tie into exercise. So the number one point for me is that you may not want to exercise. And so when you don't want to do something, it's actually really hard to get the energy to initiate that action. And so you have to make it really easy to, to start that. So for me, having something available within my home was a game changer. So I would do the occasional yoga class or the occasional spin class outside of my house. But 
all of the barriers really became too much, especially with a busy surgical practice. And so by eliminating those barriers and creating an area where I can exercise inside of my home, I really changed the way that I was able to access fitness. And so that was really important for me as well. And something I would encourage other surgeons to consider if they have the same barriers. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice. And part of it is being introspective and figuring out what your barriers are. Um, is it the home? Is it time? Is it, uh, you know, kind of the way your life functions? I was talking with somebody the other day in, in one of the other podcasts about um, how a lot of surgeons are morning people. And so we tend to kind of shift our workouts and stuff to the morning because it's just naturally fits the way we do. And, and uh, this other surgeon is not a morning person, but he shifted his workouts to the morning because that's where it fit his family structure the best. He really needed to be home and present for his family in the afternoon and evening. So if he wanted to be physically fit and work on that, he had to do it in the morning. And so it, it part of it is being introspective and recognizing kind of how your life fits in and how your boundaries fit in. Absolutely. And the great part about exercise is that it's really flexible. You can incorporate it into any time of day. You can incorporate it into breaks between cases if you really need to get it in. I have done standing yoga in the operating room between cases on call. I feel like you just have to commit yourself because oftentimes you may not feel at first like you want to do this thing. And it takes a little while, I think, to start to reap the benefits and rewards of exercise. And I think it's not really until we get the benefits and rewards that these habits become ingrained in our daily activities. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember um, I've gotten really into yoga and I, I follow you on Peloton. You may have seen me. I do a yoga class almost every day. Some days it's just a 15, 20 minutes, sometimes a 10 minute thing. But as you said, keeping it going. When I first started, it was five minutes. It was 10 minutes. Now my wife laughs at me. If we're traveling, we're flying out early. I'll wake up extra early in the morning just to do a 10 minute or 15 minute yoga class because I feel really weird if I haven't done it now. It's it's become such a, as you said, a habit. It's become a part of me and who I am. I've got to do something every day. It just helps kind of uh, helps you feel better. I remember having friends uh, at different points in my life who used to say, oh, I didn't run today. I feel terrible and not understanding at all what that meant, thinking like this person's bananas. I don't run any day and I feel great. But um, I think that now I truly understand that concept because I think that you feel so good after exercising and it becomes such a part of your routine that when you don't exercise, that you actually have some kind of, I think it's a mental and physical withdrawal. And so even though I do incorporate rest into my routine, I really incorporate it mindfully because I need the also mindful aspect of exercise to keep me going throughout the day. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your mindful aspect of, of, you know, exercise and how that fits in. Yeah. So first of all, exercise for me is a time that I carve out into my schedule that is just for me. I am not checking my email. I am not on Twitter. I am only answering pages if I am on call. And so that's like a really wonderful way to sort of carve out some personal time for yourself. And for me, I'm not really good at straight meditating, but I do find that the mind-body connection that occurs during physical exercise is a very similar sort of um, feeling for me. So if I have a lot of anxiety or frustration, I really like to run it out. So I will get on the treadmill and I will run really hard and I will just focus on my physical aspect and listen to music that provides me with a specific kind of feeling. And then that feeling of accomplishment, as well as just the the sort of process is really cleansing for me. I will get off of that treadmill and think I feel better. I feel more calm. I feel more connected to my body. Similarly, on OR days, I actually don't do any like really intense exercise on OR mornings. I actually will try to do yoga or some kind of slower strength because I think that for me, it's more calming. So I really enjoy connecting the breath to my body. I really enjoy sort of the stretching and the postures because I think that that helps me perform better in the operating room. And that also creates that mind-body connection for me. And I have found over the past two years such an incredible improvement in my posture, in the way I feel in the operating room, in my overall mental well-being, all from what I would attribute to regular physical activity. 
I think that's such a strong example for people to hear, Casey. And, you know, mindfulness has gotten associated with meditation, but mindfulness really means being present, being in the moment. And there's so many ways to do it. And the, the technical term is active meditation, right? Instead of a, a passive or still meditation where you're sitting and whether you use a mantra or wherever it may be, but active meditation is walking or exercises, exercising or mountain climbing or whatever it may be that you enjoy doing physically, but really being in that moment and putting all else aside. And you give wonderful examples of it. And you're reaping the benefits. Yeah. It's really a win-win. You just have to get started. Yeah. No. And, and it, and it's a challenge. And, um, you know, I've, when I first started getting back into physical shape and, and really dude, you know, I, I thought, or a lot of us think the physical nature of what we do is the, also the easiest thing to kind of push off. We're busy. We're worried about our clinical practice. We're worried about taking care of our patients. We're worried about our families. We're worried about trying to be productive, whether it's academically or, or uh, you know, kind of in our community practice, whatever it may be. And we say, well, working out and all of that, we can push that to the side. That's the thing that's most expendable. But in retrospect now, I've come to realize that that really is good physical health and well-being is actually the foundation of all of those other things. And it, it, by giving yourself sleep, nutrition, working out and whatever workout you like, whether it's cardio or weights or yoga or strength training, whatever you like, that physical well-being actually serves as the foundation to allow you to proceed with all of those other kind of pursuits, I think in a much better way. 100% agree with that. So I think that some people, you know, my story and a couple of people who know me personally will know this, but I have not been what I would consider to be a physically fit or even sort of like wellness focused person over the years, especially during my residency training. I think I approached it from a mentality that residency was the most important thing and that I had to commit as much of myself to my training as possible. And so to me, that meant that if I didn't have time to cook a healthy dinner, I would eat whatever the hell I could get my hands on. If I didn't have time to exercise, I would not. All of my free time, I think, really wrapped into the concept of reading, being in the operating room, proving myself to be the hardest worker. And while I think I did a great job, I think I really neglected multiple other aspects of my life. And I don't think I realized at the time that I wasn't necessarily performing at my best, if that makes sense. I don't think it's until now that I, in retrospect, realized the importance of actually treating yourself as if you're an athlete. So we are actually all high-performing athletes as surgeons. I think that that's a really important analogy for me now that I'm sort of understanding the connection between taking care of your body, taking care of your mind, and being a long longevity surgeon, right? So I think that if you take a little bit of time to exercise and a little bit of time to sleep and a little bit of time to eat, you're really not taking away that much time from your other pursuits. I think people think of it as like a pizza pie and you're stealing one slice from work and you're stealing one slice for family. So you'll feel so much more energized, I think, when you do those things that you'll actually find that you can rearrange your time into a more efficient manner. And that's really what I've found. The other thing I think is once you reach a point in your career where you have a little bit more control, which I think maybe in residency you may not, I think you can actually identify the things that are important to you and try to arrange your schedule in a way that works for you. An example of this is I love to exercise in the morning. For me, it sets the tone for my entire day. And I like exercising before clinic. <clears throat> my clinic typically starts at 8 a.m. And, you know, my 8 a.m. patient was always late. I don't know if the same thing happens over on the East Coast, but over here, my 8 a.m. patient is always late. And I would always feel really annoyed that I was there at 8 a.m. and my patient wasn't. So, I asked my boss if I could start my clinic at 8.30. I said I would get an extra half hour to exercise, make myself breakfast, and sort of create this morning routine that would make me happy. And I would give up one patient off of my schedule in return. And, you know, usually you add them on somewhere else. So he said yes. And I've been doing this for the past year. And what a difference it's made. That one patient, that one half hour in the morning has transformed my entire day. 
I think it's a great example and I'm, I, I'm jotting it down here. I mean, one patient can make a difference. One micro change can absolutely change the way our day goes. And the important part, once again, is you being introspective and reflecting and sitting, saying, I think this would make a huge difference for me, experimenting with it. And you could have gone and this could have been a total failure. It could have totally not worked for you. Um, and then you, the worst thing that happens is you go back to an 8 a.m. start. So I, I think it's a great example of, of, being proactive and thinking about what's going to make your day better. Yeah, absolutely. And once you have the ability to arrange your schedule like that, I highly recommend it for everyone. I think that it's really important to see the balance and the importance of that. Yeah. And I give um, a lot of credit to your boss too. There are a lot of bosses who will not recognize that those little changes can make a difference. And to get back to your sports analogy before, I think, you know, that was one of the major motivations for me starting a wellness path and trying to work with surgeons all over the country, but particularly focusing on, on young surgeons is that we're expected to have a 30 plus year career in surgery. And that's a, this is a physical vocation, right? I mean, we're on our feet, we're using our hands, and we get very little training or support in wellness. You look at professional athletes, the majority of professional athletes are done with a career within three to five years. They've cashed out, but they've also gotten tremendous support through that physical endeavor. They've gotten coaches and trainers, mental, um, you, know, you know, mental coaching and, and mental health as well for a three to five year career. And we're looking at, at, decades worth of work and we have very little support. So we need to support each other and we need to set good foundations early in our careers to help promote longevity. Absolutely. I think, you know, when we think of ourselves as um, high performance athletes, it's absolutely important to think about how we can support that. Right. And so you bring up some really important points. You know, when everyone talks about burnout, they talk about incorporating exercise, but I don't see very many people talk about how to incorporate exercise or what resources are provided. Um, and so I really try to encourage people to think about what resources are available to them because exercise comes in different forms. It can be a yoga practice in your office. It can be, you know, a Peloton bike in your home. It can be a CrossFit membership. There's like so many ways of thinking about it, but you need someone to support that. You need the system to support that. And then there's the really important tie between the performance mentality as well, right? These athletes that we think of as superstars like Phelps and Michael Jordan, they all have a really important mental aspect to their game that I think ties very strongly into the physical aspect. And I believe that when you find your passion for physical activity, that you strengthen your passion for the mental stamina and the mental routines as well. The connection between those two things is really fantastic. I don't know if you feel the same way. I feel exactly the same way. And I think a, a great metaphor for it too is the military feels the same way. Part of the reason they incorporate such strong physical training and requirements into their teams and into their soldiers is to promote the mental aspects of hard physical training. And at a basic level, listen, when we're in the operating room and things may or may not be going well, what happens? Our heart rate goes up or we start breathing a little bit faster, right? Our, our physiology raises. The best way to simulate that is to get on a treadmill or go for a walk or do those things. We can get our heart rate up. We can get our breathing rate up and we can work on lowering those things and staying focused. There are tangible benefits mentally. And, and thank you for bringing that up to, to what we do physically. It's a great point. Yeah. I think, you know, if you've ever listened to the happiness lab, I really like the happiness lab. Um, they have an episode where they talk about Phelps and how he does a lot of sort of mental preparation for his physical swimming. And there's this one episode where they talk about how he actually puts himself through mental drills and how those mental drills would then translate into his physical drills. And for me, I would say that it's a little bit of a reverse where I put myself through physical drills at home when I'm exercising. And that really puts me in the right mind frame for the, for the actual physical and mental nature of being in the OR. So I really think it's really fascinating when you think of these people who are at the top of their game, how we can incorporate some of the same strategies into being a surgeon. Yeah. I, once again, great analogies. And I always think of it this way. I mean, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Kobe, 
Derek Jeter, Tom Brady, these people are already in the 99.9th percentile of physical abilities and they're competing against people in the 99.9th percentile of physical ability. So how do they make a difference? It's in their mental approach. It's in their ability to rest and focus and do all of those other things that help them achieve the greatness they have. So great points, Casey. I would also say that I think we as surgeons are in the 99, maybe just the 99th, maybe 99.9 is an overestimate, but we're in the 99th percentile of, I would say, intelligent humans. And I think that we don't take great care of ourselves and we need to figure out ways to do better because we focus so much of our brain power on just the here and now of operating and seeing patients. And we do not focus enough of our mind power on ourselves, on our physical selves, our mental well-being. And I think that we could all be better at what we do if we just give ourselves 5% more investment. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And and what's really interesting too is for the longest time, it wasn't okay to do those things, right? We were expected to work hard and not be physically fit and not take care of ourselves because if you were taking care of yourself, that was at the expense of your patients or your hospital or something else. And I think we're starting to realize all of the the kind of how misguided that that thought process was. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely been a shift, I think, in the mentality in general in the world, but it's translating into academic medicine where people are starting to value wellness to a certain degree. I see that trickling in, especially for our trainees. And I think that that's really important. But I also think it's really important to recognize that you can work out, you can eat healthfully, you can take vacation and your patients won't suffer. You will actually take better care of them. You will take better care of yourself. You'll be a better person and everyone else will reap the rewards of it. And so that's really the take-home message. You're not any weaker of a trainee. You're not any weaker of a chairperson because you took a week of vacation or you took an hour in the morning to do yoga. Yeah, great points. And, you know, one of the criticisms of this podcast and kind of wellness movements in general is that, especially from, from trainees and residents, they feel like they, they don't have time and they're struggling so hard just to kind of stay afloat or, or just kind of keep moving forward. Um, and I always try and flip it back to them, as I said before, well, putting the foundation in your, in your wellness and your health will help you achieve the other things you're trying to do instead of trying to do it in reverse, instead of trying to achieve these things and then make time for, for wellness, find the wellness and you'll be happily surprised how well you can achieve those other things. But I wanted to ask you, how do you work on this with your trainees and your residents and, and fellows? How do you impart to them how important this is? That's a really great question. So first I would say maybe they teach me more than I teach them. Um, one of the benefits I think of working in the Pacific Northwest is that there's a really like a plethora of outdoor activities. And I see that our residents really do take advantage of it. I do encourage them to try to make it a regular routine and especially to keep it going while they're working. One of my residents who I adore, her name is Roxanne. Shout out, shout out to Roxanne. Um, is very physically active. And I think she was struggling with how to incorporate it at home uh, and also with her time, right? And so actually we had her fill out one of those Peloton comeback essays where she wrote to Peloton and told them like, I am a woman, I am a surgeon, I work, you know, 80 hours a week and it would really transform my life to have this piece of equipment available to me and she got a free peloton bike sent to her with a free membership for a couple of years and i really would encourage people to you know think outside of the box figure out a way to make it work for you we have a gym that's on campus join that gym and if you have a little bit of time go to the gym between you know whatever else you have going on I think I would never shame someone for telling me that they worked out on a break. And I think that's important. And also I've actually invited residents to work out with me between cases too. And they're like, wow, that was actually kind of nice. I enjoyed that standing yoga flow and I feel a little bit better at 11 PM before we do a torsion. And so I think modeling behavior is really important. And so I do try to do that. I also talk about it. We'll try to encourage people to sign up for like a 5K with me. So that way it's a social activity and that really kind of boosts morale around physical activity. 
But overall, I think that the residents have maybe taught me more than I've taught them. I just try to encourage them and to model my good behaviors for them. That's great. And it's a wonderful sentiment. You know, um, we always, we do, we call residents, we call fellows, we call them trainees, but you're right. We, we learn a ton from them as well. And it really works best when it goes both ways and you're learning from each other and normalizing the behaviors and the good behaviors is just so important because for so many years, um, in surgery specifically, we, we normalize bad behaviors. So it's really nice to be able to normalize good behaviors and open the discussion about exercise and wellness and long careers. And what did you do this morning? What did you do last night? You know, I I think those are important things. And if you think about all of the conversations that we have in the operating room, and for those people who are listening, who are not surgeons, we talk all of the time in the operating room. It's just part of the culture. Um, You know, we will talk about a lot of things that might not be consequential, that might just be sort of like background I would encourage you to open up the conversation around exercise with the people around you because you might be really intrigued and surprised to find out what other people do. And that can be incredibly motivating to share your successes with other people around you. Um, one of our anesthesiologists here is an ultra marathon runner, and I love to listen to those stories. That's so fascinating to me. And other people that I work with are power lifters. And again, I love to hear about that. It's really encouraging to, to have these conversations with each other. And maybe that's a more meaningful and powerful conversation than what you watched on Netflix last night. Yeah. Great points. Really, really, really um, good stuff. And, you know, I wanted to kind of in full disclosure, I wasn't like this as a resident. Um, I, I was not so focused on wellness. I was, in all honesty, probably focused on a lot of the wrong things. Um, and I would, uh, and I know you had a similar experience too as a, as a resident and a transformation. And so I just think it's important to kind of say that to the trainees out there too. You don't have to be perfect right now and you can kind of work towards these things, but you can also be a lot better than Casey and I were. Tell us a yes. little bit, tell us a little bit of your training story and kind of your evolution to where you are today. Yeah. So I, I actually don't think I ever ran a mile outside of maybe when I was required to in like middle school until a year ago. So that's just to set the baseline. And so well, that's why when Phil asked me to do this podcast about exercise, I was like, me, <laughs> you know, I'm not a professional athlete, right? But um, I really put my physical well-being on the back burner to my training. And I treated training like it was the only thing that was important to me. And every moment of time really had to go into waking up, drinking a cup of coffee and getting myself to the hospital. And then as soon as I was done in the hospital, I would come home and I would just pour myself into my work and I would basically pass out and repeat. And it became this really intense cycle. It felt like the military to me, minus the physical part of the military training. It really felt like mental military training for me. And I had a singular focus and that singular focus was training and how to be what I considered to be the best type of urology resident there could be. Um, And at the time, I don't think I recognized that this was wrong. And you're right. In a lot of ways, it was celebrated, right? So staying there the latest, you know, everyone was like, wow, she works so hard reading a lot, you know, everyone really appreciated that staying for an extra case that wasn't even assigned to me. I think people really valued that type of attitude. And I think that they, they sort of translated it to the concept of grit. Oh, she's, you know, always working. She works so hard. She's great. But I don't think that people saw that it was the only thing I was doing, except for maybe my co-residents. They probably recognized that I was toiling away without anything else going on. And so I think it wasn't until much, much later, probably started in fellowship where I felt maybe a little bit like things were lacking in my life. And I started to explore yoga a little bit and, you know, I would have a tough day and then I would go take a yoga class and I would feel better. Like, okay, that's, it's interesting and I'm learning, but it was very discouraging because I couldn't do a quarter of the things people were doing in the yoga class. It was kind of embarrassing, right? And that's when I sort of developed the concept that yoga is a practice. So, you know, you're not going to walk into a yoga class and be able to do a handstand, or at least I'm not. And uh, that's why you just have to keep practicing, right? But making the classes was really hard because my schedule was at the whim of 
the call pager as a fellow. And I wasn't really dedicated to it in a sort of wholehearted way. It was more of a half-hearted way. And there was a moment during my early attending time where I said, okay, I'm going to try prioritizing physical fitness. But again, wasn't able to form a habit, just didn't really, didn't get it. The pieces didn't connect and fell right back into the same routine of, working really hard, trying to build a practice, trying to build an academic reputation and a national reputation. And I felt really crummy. I felt tired. I felt burnt out. I felt emotionally volatile, like a little bit edgy all of the time. And um, it was exactly at that moment, which was February of 2020, where I was like, I need to get my life together. I need to invest in myself and I'm going to buy this Peloton bike And I'm going to use it every day for 30 days. And if at the end of 30 days, I hate it, I can return it free of cost. (laughs) And the rest is history. No, it's wonderful. Um, Before we get into kind of talking a little bit more about uh, that, I want to ask you a little bit more of a sensitive question and feel free to not answer this if if you don't want to, but you worked really hard in residency. You were singularly focused. You're an incredibly strong woman surgeon. How did that play into your mentality as a trainee or did it? And how does that play into kind of, you know, uh, as you progress as junior faculty and such? That is a really good question. So it obviously very much played into it in a way where I felt like I represented all women. And so I had to be strong because if I failed, I would fail on behalf of all women. I always felt like women in general might be scrutinized more or have to live up to more. And so I always felt like as a woman, I had to perform at 110% of my colleagues in order to be recognized on the same level. In my residency, I don't necessarily feel that the people who trained me felt that way. Like, I think a lot of that might have been a self-imposed feeling because I did have some really amazing women who were mentors and women who were co-residents. But at the same time, I do feel like, especially being a single woman, oftentimes things would roll on to me like, oh, so-and-so has like dinner reservations tonight. So Casey, can you do the late case? Because like, you don't have anything going on, you know? And so I definitely felt like being the hard worker, you know, when you do good work, what's the reward? More work. (laughs) And when you don't create boundaries, what's the reward? More work. And so I really saw that all roll on to me during residency. And as a sign of not wanting to display weakness, I would never say no. I would do whatever was asked of me at the time. And so translating that now as a faculty member, I really try to ensure that I protect and create boundaries and model that in front of the residents. And I really want them to feel safe and comfortable talking to me about anything. I also really think that it is important to recognize that we don't necessarily hold women and men to the same standards academically. And so I think it's valuable for me to be at the table at our faculty meetings, because for example, if someone gets a complaint about a female resident for talking sternly on the phone, I'm the first person to be like, we don't get complaints for men speaking sternly on the phone. Like let's, we're throwing this one away. So I think that it's important to be an advocate for, for women. And I really try to I really try to protect them. And I'm hoping that by doing that, that they don't necessarily feel the same pressures that I felt during training, if that makes sense. It makes a ton of sense. And I think it's one of the things we're all struggling with now is Mm -hmm. uh, empowering our women, empowering our underrepresented minority trainees in in a way that that supports them and does not single them out. Um, And it's it's challenging. And creating the right environment and the right culture is, is takes time. It takes effort and it takes, you know, uh, intentional practice to use another mindful term to really get there. I think it's really hard to change culture. And that's something that I struggle with because, you know, obviously when you're a new faculty starting at a new institution and you want to kind of create a culture change, 
you'll, you'll hit some barriers because every institution has their own cultural practices. But my goal is to create a culture of safety and a culture of wellness that does not sacrifice a culture of hard work. I think that's great. How do you um, em- empower your young you know, female residents now to do that? Uh, besides leading a good example and talking about the Peloton and those things, but uh, you know, how do you empower them now? I try to do it in so many different ways, but another example is I try to have them. How do I put that? I have a women in urology group. So I will invite them over to my house or for a picnic outdoors where we sometimes will just be social and hang out and talk to each other because I think it's really powerful to have those connections outside of work You know, you may think you know how someone is doing, but if you take the time to actually sit down across from them over some grapes and cheese and bread, you might get a different story. And I think it's really important to get to know people as a whole being and not just as a worker bee, right? The other thing is I'm trying to incorporate some more aspects of leadership training into our conversations because I think that for underrepresented minorities and for women specifically, leadership opportunities are fewer and farther between. And you might not be groomed for positions as much as your male counterparts. And so I try to do some leadership training exercises because I think that these skills are really translatable to every aspect of your life, even as an intern, for example. And I would encourage people across the country to try to incorporate this into their residency programs as well. And so far, I think the feedback has been positive overwhelmingly because there's been a real lack of this, I think, previously. I never had anything like this in training. Yeah. What are, those, what are some of the things you specifically go over? I think a lot of the residency programs are seeing shifts towards leadership training, let's call it. But what are some of the things specifically you go over? Yeah. So, for example, this Sunday... I had people over and we actually had someone come and give us a talk on negotiation and hard conversations. And I mean, I learned a lot and I've even taken negotiation classes before, Um, but we're all put in circumstances where we need to negotiate and whether you're negotiating on behalf of a patient, whether there is a power dynamic between a chief resident and a junior resident, whether you're negotiating for your first job contract. There are a lot of lessons to be learned there. And there's a lot of good data that shows that women in general may not negotiate for themselves the same way that men do. And I don't want them to feel like they never had those resources at their fingertips. And so I try to make it really focused on the gender equity portion of it too, because sometimes when you give a course to all of the residents, it may not necessarily address things that might be hyper-specific to minorities or to women in general, if that makes sense. I wanted to make sure that it was directed towards some of the pitfalls that women might suffer from in negotiation. Some of the, uh, some of the techniques you can utilize if you find yourself in an uncomfortable situation that might be actually too specific for women and not necessarily for an entire group. It's really, I think really, uh, uh, laudable. That's that's great that you're that you're doing things like this, and I think it's can serve as a really great example for other places trying to improve uh, their workforce and how they're taking care of the women uh, in their groups. Um, I wanted to ask you, and you know, your your partner language. You're a badass robotic surgeon. You do a ton of robotic surgery. You talk about robotic surgery a lot. How does your physical and mindfulness training now to get back into surgery, how does it help you uh, in the operating room, um, you know, kind of when you're doing surgery or teaching surgery? That's a, so I love this. So I love robotic surgery and I love the connection here because I think that the number one benefit I've noticed from physical activity into my robotic surgery practice is my I would say my mental stamina and also some mood stabilization. So especially as a younger faculty, I have conflicting feelings about, I really want to do a good job and I really want to be a good teacher. I want the resident to get a great educational experience on the robot with me. They want to appear cool, calm, and collected, even if I'm really nervous inside. Okay. 
because I think that's really important for our trainees to, to make them feel comfortable, right. At, at every aspect of a surgery. Now, obviously if I felt like something bad was happening, I would take over, but you know, I think that there is a significant loss of control when you're allowing someone else to operate on the robot in a way that is not translated to open surgery where your hands are there. There has to be a lot of trust. And I think that you have to remain relatively calm, cool, and collected during that time. And so I feel so much more stable during these cases on like a mood level and an anxiety level when I do yoga in the morning before doing these cases. I think that the mindfulness really translates into how I teach and how I perform. And so I hope that the residents recognize that as well. No, it's great. And listen, there's there's a lot of purported benefits to mindfulness training, but one of the really well-documented ones is that you can control mood and you can control things quickly, right? It helps you with brain transitions to go from the anxious state to the calm state, to go from a scared state to an excited state. And that is well-documented in neuroscience literature, as well as kind of the mindfulness literature. And, and I think it's a really great example of using those techniques and those abilities to be an effective teacher and an effective leader. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think I also, in general, pay much more attention to the ergonomics aspect of surgery now. Um, I think that working out and strengthening my body has led me to think much more about how I position myself at the console, how I stand at the bedside, how my resident does that as well. So I want to make sure that they're optimally set up at their console, and I want to make sure that they are not hunching over when they're sewing up the ports, et cetera. And maybe it was something I talked about before, but I am so much more cognizant of it now because I really see it all flowing together as being the same of the same importance as the operative procedure. Yeah, hugely important. And I don't do cystectomies anymore, but when I stopped doing them, I was doing them almost exclusively robotically. And we can have arguments about oncologic outcomes and such in the literature. To be honest with you, I think it's a complete wash. But the reason I did them all is I felt so much better after a day of doing two cystectomies robotically than I did doing two cystectomies open. It was a totally different physical experience. And I felt much better at the end of the day. And that was one of, and that's something we don't report in the literature. We don't talk about in academic medicine is the way you feel at the end of the day when you're doing an operation. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> I feel, so I haven't, full disclosure, I haven't done an open cystectomy in, uh, since like 2013 or so. Um, but what I will say is that I remember exactly how it feels after a big open surgery on an adult where your arms are in there and your body is twisted and like you need a full body massage for two hours to recover and you just can't do that every day sustainably, right? You're, you're going to injure yourself. So robotics really is wonderful for that. And also as a person who is smaller, I have small hands. I wear a five and a half gloves. Um, a lot of instruments aren't made for me. And sometimes it can be a physical struggle. One of the reasons I love pediatrics is that a lot of the instruments are actually made for me and are nice and small. But for open surgery, I think we really don't take care of our bodies I see surgeons have a really high injury rate, especially for like C-spine issues and other sort of musculoskeletal issues. And the robot does offer some protection there. And I think that it's really interesting that that is a distinct benefit to the surgeon. And we don't talk about it enough, to be honest. Yeah. And, and listen, there are, there are well-reported cases of, you know, ergonomic injuries after robotic surgery too. And I think the key is being aware of your body and mm -hmm. learning how you're interacting with either the console or standing there open. And I, I find myself commenting a lot to the residents the same way. I mean, we may do a big open nephrectomy or an RPLND. And like you said, we're in there, arms are in, elbows in deep. And I find myself using yoga terms. I'm like, focus on your front body, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> so much time, so much time we sit there and we're kind of trying to hold our head up by using everything in our posterior chain. But if you just tighten up your front body a little bit, it takes so much strain off your spine and your back. And, and that's where core strength really comes in. And it's the same thing robotically. You'll find sometimes the residents, they get that big bright red forehead, right? From pushing into the console. So oh, hard. yeah. Use your front body, step up out of it, let yourself sit there in a relaxed position, and you're going to feel so much better at the end of the day. Absolutely. I 100% agree. I think core strength and really strengthening 
your trunk is important also. So for me and for a lot of surgeons, we do a lot of hunching. So we spend half of our lives with our shoulders rounded forward and our pecs are sort of just like taken over and our backs are then fighting to pull us back. And uh, it's going to hurt. It's really going to take its toll on all of us. And I actually, I injured my shoulder. I think I injured my shoulder weightlifting, but I saw a physical therapist and it was one of the most eye-opening experiences for me because the physical therapist was like, it really isn't weightlifting that did this to you, Casey. It was like, however many years of you standing like this, that did this to you and we need to undo this. And so I've really been working on core strengthening, strengthening the area, like the small muscles on my back. And I have found that I feel so much better after operating than I did previously. And really what an amazing experience that I had no idea that I had to do. So I recommend everyone sees a physical therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I had a little back muscle injury a few years ago. And first of all, you get 10 weeks of physical therapy. You get at least a 15 minute massage every week. So it's amazing. But, um, but it also really, they really help you with body awareness um, Mm -hmm. and, and understanding what hurts and why it hurts. And you start becoming aware of, oh, wait, something bad's going to happen because this doesn't feel right. And you can start honing in on these things. And, and you're right. There's, there's a, a wealth of knowledge that we can learn from, from our allies in physical medicine and physical therapy. Yeah, I think that learning how to take care of your body is something that is not stressed enough. And I think every residency program should at least dedicate a lecture, not just to ergonomics, but to sort of understanding how to take care of yourself, how to prevent injury it's okay to see a physical therapist. You know, a lot of the times your insurance might cover it. Your insurance might cover massages. Like these are important things to longevity and they should be discussed and encouraged. I think everyone should get massages. (laughs) (laughs) Now, listen, every time we have a physical therapy student who comes around in the hospital, I say, listen, you want a great business idea? You should take care of surgeons like they're athletes, right? Like you said before, if we had training rooms, for before and after surgery, where just like an athlete, massage, stretch out, hot whirlpool, cold whirlpool, right? It would really help with our longevity. And whether it was the surgeons or the hospitals paying for it, those physical therapists would do very well financially. I bet you they'd get at least an extra year out of us. And that would be <laughs> worth it too, right? <laughs> yeah. At least. Well, good. Well, Casey, we're coming up on uh, about 50 minutes or so here. I just wanted to give you the opportunity. Is there anything you want to go over that we haven't really talked about yet? Uh, anything you want to bring up and bring or talk with the audience with? Yeah, I think that the, my take-home message for the importance of incorporating a physical well-being practice into your everyday life is also the way that it will change the way you frame the world. I think that I went through life framing the world in ways of I can do this thing and I can't do this thing. And I think that by training my body, I've realized that I no longer say that I can't do something. I've recognized that everything is a practice, that there's really nothing I can't do. I can do anything. Um, in the words of some of my favorite Peloton instructors, I can do hard things and I tackle it in a different way. And that mentality has really shifted the way that I practice medicine, the way that I see myself as a urologist and really the way that I frame things on just sort of a global level. And so I would really encourage people to to think about it in terms of, you know, you can do hard things. You can, you can run a mile if you've never ran a mile before. It may seem totally outside of the realm of what you think you're capable of, but it really starts with one step, right? And so I think of the same thing in surgery, like you can do those things. You just have to train yourself and commit yourself to achieving it and you will achieve it. Yeah, it's great. When, um, when I was in medical school, uh, a buddy of mine from college and I, who were living in New York, decided we were going to do the New York Marathon, and we were not runners by any stretch of the imagination. And we trained together for, you know, I forget what it was, twenty weeks or whatever, getting ready for, you know, the run. And uh, I'll never forget that day. It was eighty degrees and eighty percent humidity in the first week of November in New York, which it's never. And it was the most brutal experience of my life. It was awful. And we both finished and we were both extremely disappointed in how we felt and how we finished. 
but I learned that you could do just about anything. Your body can take it. And if you can mentally put yourself in the right frame of mind and do the work, you can get there and you can finish these things. And I agree with you, physical training, physical work can, can serve huge benefits uh, other than just the physical work. Yeah. I think that your physical being is really just an extension of your mental being, but treating yourself well physically can expand your mental abilities. And so really think of the two things as being connected. I don't know if you've read the book Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins, but um, it's a really interesting look into the connection between what you think is physically possible and what, you know, what you're able to achieve if you just put your mind to it. Um, And so for me, I went from being a person who never ran a mile and now I run five miles routinely and feel like I'm on top of the world. So, but I also feel like I'm performing the best as a surgeon that I've ever performed, that I'm excelling in an academic arena, that I have a really happy social media presence and national presence. And yeah, everything seems to come together when you keep, when you kind of keep yourself whole. I love that message um, and, and brings us to perfect to, to summary time. And I think keeping yourself whole is a, is a great theme to kind of finish on, but just to kind of highlight some of the things that we talked about in the last hour, um, one small change can make a huge difference. And you said one patient can make a huge difference, right? Adjust little adjustments, little modifications can make a huge difference in your life and the way you feel and the way you perform. I love when you said you are not weaker if you take time off, if you go on vacation, if you work out rather than read an extra, you know, uh, journal, um, your patients will not suffer. In fact, they will do better because you've taken care of yourself and you're more into them. You're more efficient when you come back to things. And, um, we talked about mental, mental preparation, how, not how physical health and physical stress actually helps you be more cool, calm, and collected mentally when you're in the operating room, when you're teaching. And not only does it promote good outcomes for your patients, but good outcomes for the residents and makes you a better teacher and a better role model. And then lastly, to be not I can versus I can't, but that you can do just about anything uh, if you work hard enough. And, And I think that's a great message for everybody listening. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. I could talk about this forever. Oh, we'll, oh we will talk lots more about it. Unfortunately, we've got to end uh, recording at some point, though. Absolutely. Casey, so good talking to you. Thank you so much. I know there's a lot of people who are going to benefit from listening to this conversation today. Thanks for your time. All right. Thanks for having me.